0: Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30 is where we pick back up this evening, and here in chapter 30 we are looking. Uh, we sort of stopped off there in verse 8 last time at uh, God speaking through Moses to the to the Jews in regards to the fact that though God saw prophetically that they would turn away from God and that for a time period they would. Uh, move away from the Lord and as a result of that they would bring the discipline of God into their lives and they would be cast into foreign lands but God said but when you're in those places and you call to mind again uh, from the farthest parts of the earth where I've driven you because of your error of your ways and and he says and you return to the Lord your God and you obey his voice again God said then I'll bring you back from captivity and and I'll put you back where you were before and he says and I'll incline your heart to begin to love me once again and, and God just speaks in these verses of the blessing of what it will be like when someone returns back to the Lord particularly the Jews but, but just a great reminder for all of us I am thoroughly appreciative that unlike human relationships uh, that with God there's always a doorway to return back uh, when we turn away from him or when we walk away from him. And unfortunately, as we all know from life experience, that may not always be the case in human relationships. Sometimes human relationships break apart. We turn away. We walk away. Things happen. And unfortunately, because of the nature of humanity, there's not always the doorway to return in human relationships. But with God, uh, that will always be an available opportunity. Uh, That no matter how far we've turned away from God, as long as there's still breath in our lungs, there is still opportunity to turn back to the Lord, there's still the opportunity to return to the Lord. Ultimately, if you remember the thief on the cross, one of the most greatest conversions we have in the Bible, where a man there, in a sense, is on death row, hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and it's at that moment that he comes to the awareness of his sinfulness and the reality that Jesus is the Savior. And he realizes the uh, the reality of the brevity of his life is is drawing to a close, and he turns to Jesus in that moment and says, "Lord, uh, today, remember me when you." you come into your kingdom and Jesus assures him today you'll be with me in paradise and what a wonderful thing to be able to have that kind of hope that to know no matter how far we've turned away from God, or at times maybe if we do, that there is the window to come back, there's the doorway to be restored into relationship with the Lord, that he always is willing to forgive, to be gracious, and then not even to just hold it over our heads the rest of our life, but to still bless us. God even told the Jews here that as they came back, he would prosper them again, and that he would, in a sense, bring his goodness back into their lives, that they would begin to love the Lord with their heart and soul and mind and strength and begin to obey his voice once again. And verse 9 continues on, speaking about this, God says to them, <clears throat> the Lord your God, verse 9, will make you abound in all the work of your hand, and in the fruit of your body, and in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your good land. For the Lord, notice, will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your father so again take notice there as they would return not only would god give them the opportunity to return but it says there that god would graciously welcome them back and it says that he would actually make them abound again and again as we think of human relationships sometimes people say, i'll take you back and i've seen this in marriage relationships before something happens and there's a breach in the relationship or whatever and and sometimes a spouse says i'll take you back but they're going to take you back and they're going to make you suffer for that the rest of your entire marriage relationship it's almost going to be worse afterwards than when it was before and and sometimes you can Well i'll take you back but you're going to be under my thumb the rest of your life and you're going to be a second class citizen and i'm going to make you suffer the rest of your life in misery for what happened or what you did to me or so on and so forth well i wonder god's not like that when god takes a person back he takes them back he forgives them, he restores them, and not only that, he's willing to bless them again. I mean, because God says here, look, I will again, verse 9, make you abound. I'll make you abound. I won't just take you back and that'll be it. But God says, I'll again begin to put my blessing upon your life, make you abound in the work of your hand, the fruit of your body, the the increase of your livestock. Again, blessing and prosperity that they would see good. And the Lord would again begin to rejoice over them for good as he had done before. Verse 10, he says, if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God to keep his commandments and statutes, which are written in the book of this law. And if you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, notice that's what God's looking for, just genuineness. God was looking for sincerity. He says, if you're going to turn, then turn. Don't be half-hearted about it. He says, when you turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. The idea is that God says, look, I don't want a half-hearted commitment. If you're going to commit, he says, then turn. If you're going to do it, then turn to me with all your heart, with all your soul, not to be half-hearted or apathetic. God is worthy of all of our heart and all of our soul if we're going to turn towards him. And he calls them to obey him and to return to him in this manner. Verse 11, he says, for this is the commandment which I command you today. He says, it is not too mysterious. The idea is complicated for you, nor is it far off. The idea is it's not inaccessible, somehow hard to reach or attain to. It is not in heaven, he says, that you should say, who will ascend up into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea, that is on some far pilgrimage far away, and bring it back to us that we may hear it and do it. Verse 14, but the word, God says, is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Now, I love these verses because they just show us the reality that with God, things are intended to be simple. God says here very clearly as he's talking to the children of Israel regarding his law and his commands and what the word of God was to them. He says here, my word and my command to you today, he says, it's not mysterious. It's not intended to be something that's complicated or hard to figure out. The things of God are intended to be to be simple, purposely. In fact, remember, Jesus even says that the only way people will become converted is that they become what? Like little children. children. Elementary, simplistic. Not something complex, not some you know intense you know math algorithm, or some incredible you know theory of astrophysics and and but unfortunately, sometimes people tie together mysterious and deep and complex with with spiritual, and people have this idea that the things of God are ooh, you know and you have to somehow you know ascend into some high esoteric you know, thought process or realm and, and the deep things of God, or they're just inaccessible. And here God is saying in his word, it's not too mysterious and it's not far off. It's not, it's not outside of anybody's reach. Even a child can reach and understand it. In fact, God says you almost have to, people are, God almost gives the indication we're too complicated. He says you have to become like a little child. You have to become less complicated and more simplistic. God says, we don't have to have somebody go up to the heavens and bring it down and explain this, you know, sort of complex thing to us. It's not some thing where we have to travel to some far distant land on some pilgrimage to discover some, you know, spiritual experience. He says, verse 14, no, the word that is the the, the clear word, it's near you. It's right there in front of your face. God says it's so evident it's in your mouth, it's on the tip of your tongue, what you would need to say to be in right relationship with God, and it's in your heart that you may just do it. It's it's just simple. God's not complicated. He makes things very evident, very easy, and I'm thankful for that, that God makes it so accessible to us and he keeps things spiritually so simple. That was the case for Israel. It was evident. It was clear. It was accessible for anybody to respond to it. And God does that, so therefore, the responsibility is our end. It's completely then a choice. There's no one who can say, "Well, I didn't understand. It was just too complicated. Now, what's interesting is that, if you remember, Paul the Apostle picks up on these very verses we're looking at right here in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in regards to speaking then about the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And and explains then when he's writing to the Roman believers using these verses as a reference point that the gospel message is so simple that the way to be saved and have your sins forgiven, the way to have a relationship with God and to know that you're going to heaven, he says, it's not complicated there's not some religious system that you have to figure out all the buttons to push and the rituals and rules and requirements relationship with god receiving forgiveness for your sins which we all make mistakes and sin and being in right relationship with your maker so that when you die you know that you'll go into the presence of god rather than into the torment and the punishment of hell that we all deserve for our sins he says it's not complicated and paul uses these verses as his reference point let me just read to you from romans 10 paul's words there and see how he ties this together he says for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes for moses wrote about the righteousness which is of the law the man who does these things shall live by them but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way do not say in your heart. Here's where he references Deuteronomy 30: Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to to bring Christ back from the dead. But what does it say? Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30: The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Paul says in the New Testament, this is the same way with the gospel message. The gospel message, which is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. That is for any person who is willing to believe the simple claims, and the gospel is a simple message. The simple claims of the gospel message is very simply this. We all sin. There's no difference. Everybody makes mistakes. Thought, word, deed, everything. Everybody sins and fails at times. That's one thing we all share in common. And one violation of a law makes you a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter whether you've broken a hundred laws a hundred times over, or you just broke one law your entire life. You're both lawbreakers. And we all fall short of God's standard because of our sin. It makes us guilty before our God. And something needs to be done to take away that sin and guilt and to make us right or righteous before God. And the Bible says that we can't do that on our own, but there's a righteousness that God will give to us through the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus who came. Jesus died on the cross in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And then after dying for our sins, he rose again, defeating death. And now the living Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Savior, who is alive, says, I paid for your sins when I died for your sins. And now I'm alive to tell you as the Son of God and the Savior, I will forgive your sins if you believe in me and what I did for you when I died on that cross for you. And I will give you access to heaven and eternal life because I'm the eternal God. And if you receive me into your life, I will give you eternal life and you will be with me and my Father forever in heaven. And all that's asked of us is that we believe. That's why he says here, it's near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. God says, all I'm asking you to do is to believe it and and to activate that faith in the presence of God by confessing it with your mouth and saying, God, I believe that. I believe I'm a sinner and I'm guilty before you and I'm sorry for that, God. I'm sorry that I am personally a sinner and that I have offended you by my sins and my mistakes. But God, I believe that Jesus came and died for my sins on the cross. And I believe Jesus is alive from the dead. And so, Jesus, would you save me? Because he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all it requires. Simple faith. Believing the simple claims of the gospel. It's not a complicated thing. Entering into right relationship with the God, it's not a complicated thing. It's an issue of making the choice as a sinner. Do you want to be saved? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to have a relationship with God? If you believe those things, then you articulate that with your mouth as you believe it in your heart. and You say, Lord, I believe this for me. I believe it for me. And I accept it for me. And through that, the experience of salvation, entering into a relationship with God, happens. The word is near you right there. It's in your mouth. It's on the tip of your tongue. It's in your heart. But notice that you may do it. You have to choose to do it. You have to choose like I have to choose at some point in our life to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. That's a personal choice that has to happen. Well, verse 15, Moses then goes on to say, see, I have set before you today, look at it, life and good, death and evil. That is two choices. He's he's going to say it's not complicated. This is like an ancient altar call here, if you would. This is the altar call of Moses. He says, I set before you today, life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. Why? Verse 16, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. So he speaks of how, listen, he says, I, I, I'm, I'm innocent before God. I've presented the options to you. And there's only two. He says, there's life and good and there's death and evil. You get to pick which one sounds more appealing. Doesn't take a rocket science there, I think, to figure that one out. He says, Do you, if you live good, it will bring life. If you live evil, it'll bring death. So he says, I've set before you the options. Live good, you'll experience life, abundant life now and eternal life ultimately. If you live evil, sin and evil will ultimately just bring death and destruction. It'll just, it'll destroy your life and ultimately it will bring eternal death and damnation and hell. So he says, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. And he says, what will it be? Verse 17, he says, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and notice, are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. He warns, verse 18, I announced to you today that you shall surely perish. There will be consequences if you turn away. If you don't want to hear, you, you refuse to listen. And again, this is where free will comes into play. We have the option to choose. God presents us two opportunities, but God's a gentleman and he doesn't violate our free will. Jesus says, I stand and I knock on the door of hearts, but he doesn't say, I I get out the battering ram and knock the door down. He doesn't do that. And that's incredible love. God hasn't made you to be a robot. God hasn't made me a puppet. God has created us in his image and he gives us free will because love always involves choice. Love involves choice. When someone is not given choice and they are violated, that is called rape. And God won't rape someone's conscience, do you understand? He loves people. He will persuade He will knock, he will open his arms and say, "Please, I love you this much, please, please, do not go to hell, please, don't live a life apart from me that's going to bring problems and curses and problems and and regrets, please and he, he pleads with us, and he sets before us the opportunity but he won't force us, he warns us, he gives us instruction, he says, listen, I don't want to see you perish, I want to see you prolong your days in the land. Verse 19, Moses then says, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today. In other words, he's saying, listen, let it be clear, I'm calling heaven and all of earth to witness that you have a decision and the, the, the opportunity was made to you that I have set before you, look at it there, verse 19, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, he implores them, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and obey his voice and cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give them so, so Moses again here, he's imploring the people he's imploring the people listen I set before you today he says death and life blessing and cursing and, and then he pleads with them he begs them he says please I'm begging you on behalf of God choose life choose life and i think sometimes god says that to every soul certainly the person who's not yet made their decision whether or not they're going to accept and follow jesus christ god says listen okay now you've heard it there's you have no excuse anymore you you clearly have heard it i've spoken it into your ears you've heard it in your heart your heart has been made aware it's been moved and, and you sense as i did at some point in my life, okay this is evident now i understand the, the options now and now god says but choose and god implores us by his spirit he implores us whether through someone encouraging us like moses is encouraging the people that day please god says choose life choose well choose life and choose blessing don't choose death and choose cursing and notice the reason that god wants us to choose life is he says that you and your descendants may live Notice when we choose right and we choose the ways of God, it not only blesses and enriches our lives personally and spiritually, and eternally, but it has a direct effect upon those that we're interacting with. He says that it may go well with you and your descendants may live. The idea is that, that it would you know transmit blessing upon the, the offspring, the children that would grow up in that family, that when parents choose life, when parents choose the Lord, that blessing trickles over into the lives of their children. It doesn't mean their children don't have to choose. But certainly, if a parent chooses for life and chooses for blessing, then it brings life and blessing into the home in which those children are raised, in, and they're raised in a different environment, which has incredible benefit to their lives as well. So, again, sometimes we find ourselves, certainly when we're about to consider whether we want Christ or not, or like the Israelites here in this day, just in relation to the Word of God itself, that God's saying to us, okay, the options are there. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? And God implores us, choose well. Again, the power of choice. That is probably one of the most incredible capacities that human beings have. The power of choice. That God lets us choose. And and how we choose can have such a drastic effect upon what we then experience both now and certainly long-term, our destiny as well. I love how he says in verse 20 there, choose life. And then he says that you may, again, notice the constant that's that you may love the Lord, your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life. So what does it mean to choose life? Well, he just said there, he is your life. To choose life means to choose the Lord because that's life. That's where life is found. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I love here the relational dynamic that God's saying, this is what I want for you. I want you to love the Lord. I want you to love the Lord and experience his love for you in a love relationship. That's what God wants, not religious activity. He wants a love relationship where you find a satisfactory love that surpasses any human love that you can find fulfillment in the relationship that God offers his love. You can find fulfillment in obeying his voice rather than obeying the voices of everybody else around you in the world that's saying this is what you need to do and this is how you need to be accepted and this is how you need to be cool and this is what the world does. We're listening to your own crazy voices in your head. I have them anyway. Maybe, Maybe you don't. But I have plenty of voices in here. And they're not always God's voice. And a lot of times I need to distinguish. Yeah, I hear these voices, but those voices are not God's voice. I want to obey His voice because His voice will lead me in a path that will bring blessing and benefit. And He says there, verse 20, that you may cling to Him for He is your life. Again, that's such a, a relational term to, to cling or to hold fast to the Lord because He's your life. Hey, this evening, can I encourage you? You know, If, if you lose everything else, You just cling to the Lord. If you lose everyone else, if you lose a relationship that values and meant so much, listen, cling to the Lord because he's your life. You just cling to the Lord and hold on to him and hold fast to him in a love relationship. And the wonderful thing is, is if you cling to him, he's never going to brush you off. You you get maybe lint that clings to your shirt or those hitchhiker things. If you are walking around, they cling to your pants. And usually when things cling to us, we want to, and sometimes people think that's what God's going to do. You cling to, oh, no, thank you. You Don't want you. That's not going to be the case. Sometimes people say, oh, you're, stop being so clingy. You're too clingy. You're too needy. Listen, God will never say to you, you're too needy. Your spouse might say that. I'm sorry for that. Another person may say, You're too needy, you're too clingy. God will never say you're too needy. God wants you to cling to Him. He wants you to hold tight to him and be as close to him as absolutely possible because he wants to be your life and he wants to see you experience all that he intends for you. And he wanted Israel to be able to dwell there in the land and to experience the promises that were offered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saying, I want you to experience my best, what I intended for you, which God wanted to bless them tremendously as a people as they entered into the land verse 1 of chapter 31 says then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel and he said to them and you can tell he's starting to to wrap up just a few chapters Deuteronomy but done this is his farewell speech I am 120 years old today and I can no longer go out and come in now that's the picture of leadership a shepherd goes out before his sheep comes in behind them, prepares the way. It's just a picture. He's in essence saying, I'm 120 years old, and I realize my time of leadership, my leadership ministry, he's saying, is coming to an end. And also, he says, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. And we understand what he's referring to there. We've talked about four. When Moses made that mistake, and he struck the rock the second time instead of speaking to it, and he disobeyed God's voice, and he misrepresented the Lord, it was at that point God told Moses that part of the consequence of that was that he would not then be able to lead the people into the promised land. So he reminds them, listen, my ministry is about to come to a close. I'm 120 years old. My time of leadership has served its purpose. And sometimes leadership is something that lasts for a season. He says, my time has come to closure and, and I'm not going to take you into this next phase. As you cross into the, over the Jordan and into the land, he says, this is not my calling to take you into that next season. But he says going on, verse three, the Lord, your God himself crosses over before you and he will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. So that must have been really encouraging because they, no doubt the people got a little dependent upon Moses, right? He'd been leading them for how long? 40 years, at least. I'm sure you get pretty comfortable when somebody has been your established spiritual leader for 40 years. And now Moses is saying, listen, my time of leadership is done. And and I'm not going to be with you and I'm not going to cross over and I'm not going to lead you any further in and out. My my time is coming to a close. But he says, but look, just because I'm not going to be with you doesn't mean God's not with you anymore. He says the Lord himself, the Lord himself will be there with you and cross over before you. And how wonderful, you know, leaders can come and go, but the leading of God never ceases as long as God was the one that was initially in that and doing that. You know, it was uh, such a joy this past weekend. My wife and I were up in uh, Calvary Chapel, York, when we were pastoring before there and being able to just be with the fellowship there and worship with them again to have a chance to teach there and just to see again how the workman has changed, but the work of God has, has just gone on and it 's only just gone on it 's gone on in, in, a, in a good way and, and it was kind of a neat thing before I began to, to share the study that morning I, I said to the to the congregation, many of whom I knew and were familiar faces, like you are now, but many of whom as well now i 've never met i, I don 't know them from adam they don 't know me from Adam. they only know the new pastor, the new Moses, the new ne- leader, whoever is there, but to say to them. The last time I stood in this pulpit, which had been four years, it had been four years since I've been in the pulpit there. And I said, the, when I was in this pulpit four years ago, I said to them, I said, the last nine words I said were this. I remember them specifically because it was probably one of the most dramatic days of my life. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, I said, I want to leave you with nine words. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And I just three times repetitiously quoted that phrase from 1 Corinthians 1, nine. God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. And I said, I said those words four years ago. And I said, it's been four years. And I said, I want you to know something. God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. I could have said in Jesus' name, amen, and we could have got an early lunch. <laughs> I should, maybe should have just made that my sermon. They were, well, that was great, you know. <laughs> But it's true because the Lord's presence remains. The Lord's power continues to work. And and human beings are just and Moses says, Look, "My time's coming to a close, but he ins- he assures the people, listen, the Lord God himself, he's crossing over before you. He's not he's not going to abandon you just because I'm not going to be with you humanly anymore." And he says, "He will destroy the nations before you, and you'll dispossess them." Verse 3 notice, he says, "And Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord had said again referring to that there was a transition of leadership now Joshua as we know we've seen it already it's being described now again here would be taking over for Moses there would just be a transition and Joshua who had been sort of Moses aide and his assistant who had been living among the people with the congregation he would take over and transition and he would lead the people into the next stage the next season of their life as the congregation of Israel. So again, just beautiful here. The maturity, the wisdom of Moses, this older man. God's going to be with you still just because I won't. And Joshua is the new man that God will work through and use. And God did wonderful things through Joshua as we've seen and we'll see as we get to our next study together in Joshua's book. Verse four, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I've commanded you, that God would help them to have victory over the enemies to dispossess them from their territory. The encouragement, verse 6, look at it, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes out with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So there in verse 6, God's speaking to the people. And what's he doing? He realizes, God does in their hearts, that this is kind of a scary moment. God's telling them something new is going to come to pass. They're going to finally now cross the Jordan. They're going to enter into this promised land. There are going to be giants in the land. There are going to be battles to fight. And the people, therefore, as any people would be, whenever God tells us something new is on the horizon, it's kind of a little scary. Whenever God says, "Okay, you're stepping into this new stage," or "I want you to take this new step forward," or, or you know, step into this which you've never done before, it's something that's brand new. Or, or I want you to move in this direction. You know, when God calls us to take steps forward in faith, and the Christian life is 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 a life of taking continuous steps, and there are always steps of faith that's how it works but whenever we're taking steps of faith there's always a measure of fear that we wrestle through in the process and one of the biggest inhibitors to faith is fear so god understands that so he says to them reassuring them listen you be strong and you have good courage I know it looks scary a little bit and I know that you don't feel that you have the resources to do this and you're wondering how it's all going to work out and concern. well, how's this going to happen? And how will that connect with this? And are we going to have enough strength and power? And Is it all going to work out? And God says, listen, do you know what the source of your strength is? He says, I'll be with you. Do you know what the source of your courage will be? I'll be with you. And not only will I be with you, I'll never leave you, he says, and I'll never forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you halfway into it. I'm not going to take you partway into it and say, (coughs) now try it. God's not going to do that. He says, I'll be with you and I'll stay with you through the process. And what a just a great encouragement that God brings to our hearts. We see this repeated. And perhaps tonight you're kind of facing something, confronting something in front of you. There's that sense of, Lord, I don't know if I have the strength for this or the resources. I don't know how it's going to work out. And you're, you're lacking courage. And the Lord would say, listen, you have courage. Be strong. Don't fear. Don't be afraid because I am going with you and I will not leave you or forsake you in the midst of the process. What great confidence that brings to us. Verse 70 then turns now to give an encouragement to Joshua as the new leader. Certainly that'd be intimidating for him too. And if you're taking on a new role as an individual like Joshua, I mean, they were kind of big shoes to fill Moses's shoes. Would you agree? And now Joshua has to take over and he's been with these people for 40 years. He knows what their antics are like. <laughs> so he's thinking, this is, this is going to be challenging. And no doubt Joshua was having some concerns in his own heart when Moses then called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, you be strong and of good courage for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you shall cause them to to inherit it again this is your destiny Joshua you are called to this you are called now to take the baton and to run the next leg of the race so he says you be strong and be courageous I love the language there verse 7 he says to him he says you Joshua shall cause them to inherit the land now that was true literally but again keep in mind as we've talked about before in a sense by way of typology that was true as well in the sense that Moses could not take them into the promised land Joshua would cause them to inherit the promised land and in the same way as Moses is a representation of the law and Joshua Yahshua Jehovah is salvation which is a picture a variant of Jesus Jesus is the only one who's able to bring us into the promised life the law of God can't bring us into the promised life spiritually only Jesus can. Jesus causes us to inherit. We don't inherit a land. We inherit a life, a promised life of victory, experiencing the things of the Spirit, overcoming the giants and the enemies, having victory and taking territory for the Lord. And and you can't do that through the law. If you try and live by the law and make little rules and regulations to get more spiritual, you'll do nothing but frustrate yourself. But if you rely on Jesus and look to Jesus to take you in, to cause you to inherit the things of the Spirit, it's through relationship with Jesus, you'll find greater victory and greater strength in your spiritual life. Verse eight, the Lord then goes on to say to him, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. Again, are you worried about what's ahead of you? God's the one who's gonna go before you. Again, he says to Joshua, he will be with you. And he will not leave you, forsake you. Do not be fearful, nor be dismayed. So just maybe that's an encouragement for you tonight. And maybe tonight, one of the hardest things for you is at times in your life, and maybe even currently, you have had people abandon you and forsake you and not be there for you. And they say they're going to be there. Maybe a parent's forsaken you. Maybe a parent's abandoned you. Maybe a child has. Maybe a spouse has. Maybe friends have. The Lord will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's why he is the wisest individual to be in a healthy, close relationship with because he will stay by you. He will never abandon you. That's a great promise. Perhaps tonight, the Lord wants you to know he'll never leave you. It's okay. Other relationships, listen, let me be candid. They're gonna come and go. I hate to be honest, but that's what I'm supposed to do, right? If not through disloyalty or problems or situations through death, people are going to come and they're going to go. They're going to come and go. Friendships are going to come and they're going to go. It's not always my preference. Things happen, life unfolds, and we are a bunch of weak, sinful human beings, and because human beings don't always know how to love, forgive, reconcile, relationships don't always last. And some people, "Oh, I'm, I'll be with you there. Do you know how many times I've heard? I'll be with you there forever, till the death." OK. And I like you, have seen people, they come, and then they go. But there's one person who stays with you all the time. And that's the Lord. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And you know what? There's incredible security in that. There's incre- and if listen, if you find security in that, that the Lord will never leave you and never forsake you, and you find security in that relationship, it's easier than to process, have you ever noticed, when people come and go. It's still hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. It's very difficult if we lose a loved one. It's very difficult if you lose a close human friendship or companionship. It's it's hard. It's heartbreaking. But it doesn't destroy you. Because, you know, there's one who stays with me. There's one who remains with me. That doesn't leave me or forsake me. And there's, there's incredible security to keep us grounded in the midst of that. And, and no doubt, Joshua would have some lonely times, especially as a leader. There will be times where as a leader, it, leadership's lonely sometimes. So he says, don't worry, Joshua. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. My presence will be with you. You just keep doing what's right. Verse nine, so Moses wrote this law, delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the Lord, and all the elders of Israel. Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years... At the appointed time in the year of release, remember we've talked about that before, every seven years there would be a release, the land would rest, they would give a release of debts and so forth every seven years. This was on their calendar, God prescribed for them to do this, the year of release. At the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the three main feasts, remember, celebrated their preservation in the wilderness, usually happened in the fall, like September, October, our time. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. So God here gives an instruction to the people as they're about to go into the land. And he tells them every seven years when the year of release would come about, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the main feasts when everybody would descend upon Jerusalem to go there to worship, he says, at that time, once every seven years, notice, what they were to do, verse 11, was they were to read the entirety of the law to all Israel in their hearing. Some think that's just a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. It could be a reference to the entire Pentateuch from Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. So the picture is is that once every seven years, For a week-long time period during the feast, basically for a week, the people dedicated themselves to intense Bible study, if you would. It was a week-long time where they listened to and heard the reading of the entirety of the law. It was a time of in-depth Bible study, which we need that on occasion. It was a scheduled time of in-depth Bible study to be instructed in the ways of God, to know the word of God, his commands, his, his intention of how we're to live our lives, to serve him. And that was especially important to understand, even just logistically in that day, because unlike us today, which we are very blessed, most people did not have personal copies of the scripture. It was a very, very rare thing to have a copy of the scripture like we have today with printing presses and many of us have multiple copies of the word of god in that day the people highly relied upon the maybe the single copy that a priest had in their territory that they could go to the synagogue and hear that scroll opened up and read once in a while and so because of that they valued the opportunity to hear the word of god it was a treasure to them you know it should make us recognize tonight you know it, it, it is a real treasure to be able to have a copy of the word of God. We need to realize even in our day today among the persecuted church, there are places and territories in this ball of dirt, this earth that we still live on, where people in persecuted areas are thankful to have one torn out page of a Bible, an entire congregation, and they take their page home and they memorize it from Monday to Sunday and they come back the next week and it's like you know playing cards. Here, you take Philippians 1, give me Philippians 2. And they go home and they oh, flipping it on. They read it and they cherish it and they memorize it and they don't even have a copy of the scriptures. And so here God prescribes this week when they were to have this time of reading to learn the word of God. He tells them, verse 12, gather, notice the people together, men, women, and little ones. So this was a family event the stranger within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe. Notice, that they would know how to live for God, how to carefully observe the words of this law and that their children whom have not known it, the young children who hadn't yet learned it, they could hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So the idea again was that the entire family could be instructed hearing the word of God, knowing how to live for God. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, the day's approach. Now imagine what this must have felt like for Moses. He's 120 years old. And here's what God says to him. Moses, you're about to die. (laughs) The day's approach. You're about to die. Call Joshua Present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting, you and him, that I may inaugurate him to begin his ministry. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. The Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, imagine this, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, you're about to die, and go into the presence of those who are believers before you. And this people, who you've just spent 40 years ministering to, pouring your life into, they're going to rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I've made with them and then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, God's abandoned us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in which they have turned to other gods. So again, God knowing the future speaks prophetically to Moses and he says, Moses, you're about to die. And before you die, I just want to be honest with you. After you die and your presence is no longer around, all of these people are going to rebel and they're going to abandon me, they're going to forsake me, they're going to disregard my word. And, and you have to imagine, I mean, what is Mo, what's poor Moses thinking? Are you kidding me? I just poured 40 years into this. I poured out my life for these people, I taught them, I shepherded them. I, I mean, 40 years and, and, and you're basically telling me they're all going to fail? You're saying, God, all I did for 40 years was a failure. I mean, it must have been difficult for Moses to hear that. But for Moses, no doubt, he needed to realize, like we all need to realize, the reality is is that God rewards by faithfulness. And Moses' reward wouldn't be what the people did in response to what he spoke to the people and did for the people. Moses' reward when he stood in the presence of God would be, Moses, did you do what I asked you to do? Because if you did what I asked you to do, people have free will and Moses, I don't hold you accountable for how the people responded afterwards. And what a wonderful thing to know that's what our calling is, is just to do what God asks us to do. We have no control over the response and the results and that's hard at times and can be difficult but that we can know that God sees what took place. God sees our faithfulness to what he asks us to do, whether it's in a private thing or a public thing, big or small, whatever. And again, you can see how too, going forward, how, how, imagine Joshua hearing this too, and he's thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> imagine, he's got the other side. Moses did it for 40 years, and it's gonna look, gonna look like it's gonna erupt in a failure. And Joshua's here, and Joshua, I've got a great ministry for you. You're going to take over the pastor to these two and a half million cranky complaining people and they are going to do nothing but rebel and fail and falter and forsake God. Ready, Joshua? Are you excited about the ministry? No wonder the Lord says to him in Joshua chapter one, Joshua, be strong, be courageous. (laughs) I'm going to be with you because for Joshua, he's stepping into a ministry where God's telling him in advance everything he's going to pour his life into in a sense was somewhat going to look like a failure. But again, it was for him to be faithful, to fight the battles God told him to fight, to do the things that the Lord led him to do. Again, what is Jesus going to say that's going to be the greatest validation? When we step into his presence, the greatest reward is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. God gives us all ways to serve and you know what the Lord's asked you to do. I have to know what the Lord's asked me to do. Just do it to the best of your ability. Do it unto the Lord. Be faithful and let God handle the rest let's stand let's pray we'll